Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skiophonic Podcast, the home of short stories for lifelong learners. Hi, guys. What is Skiophonic? Well, it's a huge collection of thought-provoking short stories. They're true. They're fun. And as it turns out, they just might make you more interesting. Skiophonic started out in the mind of an ER doctor looking for a way to learn while exercising. He was creative and full of ideas, but his voice was not well-suited for narration. So he teamed up with the latest AI tech and formed a collaboration that has blossomed into an audiobook, a mobile app, and this podcast. You know, whatever the platform, these stories are the perfect way to fill those free gaps of time in your schedule with content that is both interesting and productive. So thanks for joining us, and please check out the website. That's www.skiophonic.com or download the app on Apple or Google Play stores. Great. Now let's see what stories are lined up for us today. Andrew? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. On Tap today is an episode we're calling Conceptualize This. It's stories about ideas and inspirations that have had a profound impact in our world. I bet you've heard about some of them. And others, well, probably not. So please put your thinking caps on and enjoy the sounds of Skiophonic. The Ice Bucket Challenge You remember it, right? That time back in 2014 when you'd scroll through your social media and see video after video of friends, celebrities, even the CEO of your company dumping buckets of freezing water over their heads. This global phenomenon took over hearts, minds, and Instagram feeds everywhere during that scorching summer. So let's all just chill for a moment and we'll learn how a well-intentioned family accidentally showed the world what the term going viral really means. It began with Pete Frades, a former Division I baseball player diagnosed with ALS at the young age of 27. Also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a progressive nervous system disease that causes loss of muscle control due to the death of neuron cells in the brain and spinal cord. Inspired by chilly challenges popular among athletes at the time, the Frades family decided to use social media to raise awareness. The premise was simple. Dump ice water on your head, post the video, donate to ALS research, and challenge others to do the same within 24 hours. The trend caught fire, spreading from Frades Boston College social network to envelop pro athletes like Tom Brady and LeBron James. Soon, household names like Oprah, Justin Timberlake, and even former President George W. Bush were dousing themselves on camera. The media covered it relentlessly as videos littered feeds. For a brief moment, the world stopped to experience a bit of frozen fun while driving donations. The numbers were astounding. Over 17 million videos were posted on Facebook alone. But more importantly, the ALS Association reported that they received a staggering $115 million in donations during the summer, a colossal leap from the $2.8 million received during the previous year. The number of new donors to the cause increased by $2.5 million. These funds triggered breakthroughs in ALS research. One of the most significant was the discovery of a new ALS gene called NEK1, which scientists say plays a critical role in the disease's development. Identification of this gene may one day lead to effective treatments or even a cure. The ice bucket challenge affected more than just the participants. It also impacted economies. 
It led to a shortage of ice in many areas and a significant increase in the sale of ice buckets, with Home Depot reporting a 300% spike. So, be honest now. Is there a video out there of you getting doused? The Ice Bucket Challenge. Despite its cold beginnings, it warmed hearts worldwide and along the way made a significant impact in the ongoing fight against ALS. Yep. To you all who challenged me, I do not think it's presidential uh, for me to be splashed with ice water, so I'm simply going to write you a check. Bro! Esperanto, the universal language that almost was. Have you ever wished for a universal language that could unite the world and eliminate language barriers? Meet Esperanto, a language invented with that very goal in mind. Although it never quite reached its lofty ambitions, the story of Esperanto is an inspiring tale of hope and the human spirit. Dr. L.L. Zamenhof, a Polish ophthalmologist, introduced Esperanto to the world in 1887. Frustrated by the barriers that different languages created, Zamenhof envisioned a simple, easy-to-learn language that would foster international understanding and cooperation. Thus, Esperanto was born, with its name derived from the pseudonym Zamenhof used, Doctoro Esperanto, which means Dr. Hopeful. Esperanto was designed to be easy and intuitive. It has a simple grammar system with only 16 rules and no irregularities, making it a breeze to learn compared to most natural languages. The vocabulary is primarily based on European languages, which means speakers of those languages might find it familiar and accessible. This simplicity has led some to call it the IKEA of languages. Surprisingly, Esperanto did gain a following, and by the early 20th century, it had attracted thousands of enthusiasts who learned and spoke the language. Esperanto clubs popped up around the globe, and the first World Congress of Esperanto was held in 1905. Not too shabby for a language cooked up in a doctor's study. But alas, with the rise of nationalism in the 20th century and a general reluctance to abandon native languages, there was never a widespread adoption. However, Esperanto has had a bit of a resurgence of late. Thanks to online platforms like Duolingo and YouTube, there are an estimated 100,000 to 2 million speakers worldwide. So, while Esperanto might not have become the universal language of peace and understanding that its creator had hoped for, it remains a fascinating and enduring testament to the human desire to connect. The next time you're at a party, impress your friends with this quirky linguistic tidbit, and who knows, you might just inspire someone to give Esperanto a try. The Floating Schools In the low-lying floodplains of Bangladesh, it rains a lot. In fact, during the seasonal monsoons, it rains so much that flooding isn't just occasional, it's predictable. The floods regularly render roads impassable and isolate communities. Many villages in rural areas experience prolonged periods of inundation, making it difficult to access schools and educational facilities. So what's the solution? Well, a non-profit organization named Shidulai Swanirva Sangstha proposed an idea. If the children can't come to the schools, we'll just take the schools to the children. Welcome to the floating schools of Bangladesh. The program started with one refurbished boat and has now grown to a fleet of over a hundred, serving thousands of students each year. 
Each boat is around 60 feet long and 10 feet wide, accommodating up to 30 students comfortably. The lower portion of the boat houses a classroom, complete with benches and tables, while the upper deck is adorned with solar panels. These panels power everything on the boat, from the energy-efficient lights that illuminate the books and faces of eager learners to the onboard computers and internet connection that expose students to the broader world of knowledge beyond their textbooks. And these floating classrooms don't stay anchored in one location. They move along the waterways of the region, docking at various points along the riverbanks to pick up students. The routine is rhythmically tied to the ebb and flow of the community's life. In the morning, the boat school arrives at a predetermined location, the children hop aboard, and their school day begins. By the afternoon, the children are returned to the same spot and the boat moves on, often serving as an adult education centre in the evenings. The design of these floating schools has also evolved to address other community needs. Some boats have been modified into libraries, providing reading materials for adults and children alike. Others have been turned into healthcare clinics, making much-needed medical services accessible even in the most isolated regions. The floating schools do face various challenges, including maintenance and repair of infrastructure, but the program continues to grow. Their ingenuity lies not just in their adaptability to the natural environment, but also in their capacity to meet the evolving educational and social needs of the community. The floating schools of Bangladesh are proof that sometimes, to keep moving forward, you just need to go with the flow. The Polygraph Do you remember the special power of Wonder Woman's lasso? Well, over the years it had a few, but the primary function was the ability to compel anyone ensnared by it to tell the absolute truth. Cool, right? Well, you might be interested to learn that the history of the lie detector starts with William Moulton Marston, a Harvard graduate and the creator of the comic book character Wonder Woman. Marston invented the first polygraph test in 1915, based on the observation that when people lied, their blood pressure often increased. The modern polygraph as we know it today was developed by John Augustus Larson in the 1920s. Larson was a medical student at the University of California and a police officer at the Berkeley Police Department. He advanced Marston's concept by simultaneously recording variations in blood pressure, pulse, respiration, and skin conductivity, factors considered to be physiological indicators of stress. But just how accurate are these devices? The American Polygraph Association claims an accuracy rate above 90%, while critics, such as the National Academy of Sciences, suggest the rate is closer to 70%. Importantly, the technique's validity has been repeatedly challenged in courtrooms. Polygraph evidence is generally not admissible in federal or state courts in the U.S. So what if you ever find yourself in the hot seat, hooked up to a polygraph? How do you beat it? Well, the answer lies in understanding how the machine works. Polygraphs determine a control, or baseline measurement, of your body's physiologic data when you answer questions truthfully. Then, when you begin to answer the important stuff, it looks for spikes or variations from your baseline to indicate you may be lying. So, a few interesting methods have been suggested as ways of beating the polygraph. Number 1. Wear a thumbtack shoe. Press down on a hidden thumbtack in your shoe when answering truthfully. This creates a high-stress baseline which can throw off the polygraph's analysis. Number 2. 
the ABC technique. Randomly think of different letters during the control questions. This confuses the machine by triggering cognitive load responses, making lies harder to distinguish. Number three, have a spicy breakfast. Eating spicy food before a polygraph test can cause mild sweating, heart rate increase, and indigestion, which can make the physiological responses during lying less noticeable. And number four, tighten your anal sphincter muscle. We won't dive too deeply into this one, but a well-timed clinch during a truthful answer will alter the system's baseline too. Moving forward, the future of lie detection may reside in the realm of neuroimaging. Researchers are exploring the use of functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, which measures brain activity by detecting changes in blood flow. Preliminary studies suggest that lying triggers specific neural pathways that could potentially be detected by an fMRI scan. Yet, this technology is in its infancy and faces considerable ethical and practical challenges before it can become a viable lie detection tool. In the end, the quest for truth continues just as it has for centuries. While it's tantalizing to dream of a foolproof lie detector, the complexities of human behavior and the brain present significant challenges to this pursuit. For now, we may just have to wait until someone invents an actual Wonder Woman truth lasso. It'll happen, I tell you. No lying. Education Showdown. Have you ever wondered how we measure the success of an education system on a global scale? Enter PISA, or the Program for International Student Assessment. Consider it the Olympics of Education, where instead of gold medals, countries vie for top spots in reading, math, and science. And despite having vastly different approaches to learning, which two countries consistently show up on the PISA podium, winning the world's education race? Finland and South Korea. Let's dive into the comparison ring to determine the secrets behind these countries' academic dominance. Finland's education system has often been touted as the gold standard in global education. The Finns believe in less is more, less homework, fewer hours spent in school, but more creative and critical thinking. There are no standardized tests until the age of 16, and rather than being competitive, the focus is on cooperation and inclusivity. Teachers are highly respected, with only the top 10% of graduates making the cut to become educators. In fact, teaching is such a sought-after profession in Finland that it's sometimes more difficult to become a primary school teacher than a doctor. On the other side of the world, South Korea takes a more rigorous approach. South Korean students are among the hardest working in the world, with school days often running from early morning to late at night, supplemented by additional tutoring sessions. They face intense competition and pressure to excel academically, particularly on the all-important college entrance exam, the Sunung. The stakes are so high that on the day of the Sunung, offices open late and planes are grounded to minimize noise. Despite the high stress, South Korean students consistently score among the highest in the world in reading, math, and science. So who wins? But here's the twist. Both systems, despite their differences, are winning in their own ways. They reflect the values and societal goals of their respective countries. The relaxed Finnish model emphasizes the development of the whole child, whereas the rigorous South Korean system focuses on academic excellence and resilience. In the end, perhaps the real winner isn't Finland or South Korea, 
but the idea that there's no one-size-fits-all approach to education. The story of these two educational titans serves as a reminder that a country's educational success hinges on its ability to align its educational practices with its societal values and aspirations. The Basque language. Have you ever seen a solitary tree standing alone in the middle of a field? Bold, beautiful, unique. There are no trees similar to it for hundreds of miles. Where did it come from? How did it get there? Now, imagine that the tree is actually a language which stands defiant in the middle of Europe. It has no known relatives, yet persists through time like a solitary island amidst a vast linguistic ocean. Welcome to the intriguing world of the Basque language, or Euskara, an enigma that has puzzled linguists and historians for centuries. Native to the Basque country, a region straddling the border of Spain and France, Euskara has steadfastly defied classification. Unlike Spanish, French or English, all part of the broad Indo-European language family, Euskara is what linguists call a language isolate. It has no known siblings or cousins. It is unrelated to any other known language in the world. The dialect's origins are shrouded in mystery and numerous theories have been proposed. Some suggest it dates back to the Paleolithic era, hypothesizing it could be a remnant of the languages spoken in Europe before the spread of Indo-European languages. Evidence for this is found in its rich vocabulary, particularly in areas related to nature, agriculture and rural life. Others link it to obscure languages like Aquitanian, or even non-European tongues such as Georgian or Berber, but these theories remain highly speculative. The uniqueness of Euskara extends beyond its origins. It's an ergative absolutive language, a grammatical system that sets it apart from most European counterparts. Plus, it has a rich inventory of distinct sounds that make it strikingly different from its Romance neighbors. Despite the pressures of Roman and Castilian invasions, Euskara has shown remarkable resilience. It reached its geographical peak around the 6th century AD, spoken across vast areas of what is now southern France and northern Spain. While its range has since contracted considerably today, Euskara thrives. Taught in schools and used in public life, the language now has approximately 750,000 speakers. It is cherished as a vibrant symbol of their unique cultural identity. Basque's untraceable roots, unique structure and the mysteries surrounding its survival make it an intriguing subject of study. In the grand tapestry of human languages, Euskara stands out as a singular thread, weaving its own captivating narrative through the annals of time. Stand proud, Lone Tree. Chernobyl Wildlife Have you ever wondered what happened to the land surrounding the site of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster? What was once a bustling region of the Ukraine quickly became a ghost town. Is it now just a barren wasteland? Ah, quite the contrary. This seemingly apocalyptic event spawned a most unexpected outcome, a thriving wildlife sanctuary. When Reactor 4 of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant exploded, 
It expelled vast amounts of radioactive particles, creating a toxic environment for humans and led to a large-scale evacuation. This region, now known as the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, spans an area of over a thousand square miles and remains largely uninhabited by humans. In the immediate aftermath, many animals perished and some were reported to have mutations. But the long-term effect on wildlife has turned out to be quite the paradox. Over the ensuing decades, nature imposed itself on abandoned houses, streets, and public spaces, with trees sprouting from the concrete, meadows overtaking parking lots, and animals roaming freely. Large mammals in particular have staged a remarkable comeback. Researchers have noted that wolves, lynx, bears, elk, and even the European bison, a species once nearly extinct, are all flourishing within this space. In fact, wolves are now seven times more abundant in the Chernobyl exclusion zone than in surrounding nature reserves. But it's not a universal success story. On a smaller scale, many insects, birds, and smaller mammals have shown physical deformities, lower fertility rates, and smaller population sizes compared to those in uncontaminated areas. The legacy of the Chernobyl disaster is still being written. However, the remarkable resilience of nature is evident. Given space and freedom from human interference, wildlife can adapt and persist, even in the most inhospitable conditions. The exclusion zone offers us a snapshot of the past, a picture of how the natural world may have appeared before humans took over this planet. So the next time you think about the Chernobyl disaster, remember that like so many times before, nature has forged a path, finding a way to endure and thrive. Credits. The stories, content, and narration in this podcast were created with the assistance of large language models like Bard from Google AI, Anthropic's Claude AI Assistant, and GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 by OpenAI. The background music was Inspirational Cinematic Trailer by Tailkeeper Music and Motivational Guitars by Clementi Skripnikov both from Pond5 Productions found at www.pond5.com. The narrator voices were produced in conjunction with Eleven Lab Studios at www.elevenlabs.io. Special thanks goes to my wife, kids and friends who provided suggestions and input throughout the project and put up with my incessant story writing over the course of 2023. Thanks guys! The end.